welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Want to Hear Something Interesting? I'm your host, Chad Knight, and alongside me for the 10th month in a row, Scott Ahern. Hey, Chad. What's the topic for this evening? Uh, Well, funny you should ask. If I said we were doing an interview with two movers and shakers in the gaming industry, what would you say? I'd say you were drunk. Hey, now that's not fair. Okay, what if I told you I had two fellow gamers ready to talk with us tonight? Well, that could be anyone. Is it Margaret Weiss? No, that's a little bigger than I was thinking. Okay, don't keep me in suspense. Who is it? All right, here we go. First, we have Alexis Smolensk. He is a writer living in Canada. The Alexis who wrote How to Run, an advanced guide to managing role-playing games? As well as The Dungeon's Front Door and other essays as well as his blog, The Tao of of D&D. That's great. Wait, you said two gamers. Who's the next one? Well, our second guest is a logistics engineer, an officer in the Army National Guard, as well as an amateur writer and philosopher. He enjoys long walks on the beach. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, He's also a very good friend of mine, and yours, I believe, Carl Olson. That he is. Welcome to the show, guys. Why don't you both tell us a bit about your backgrounds in gaming? Like, when did you start? Where did you start? Uh, Carl, why don't we start with you? You would do that, wouldn't you? I would. In fact, I just did. You would. Oh, wait, you did. Okay. All right. Well, so my background in gaming, um, let's try to make this as brief as possible, I suppose. I started with Dungeons and Dragons in the early 90s, probably 92, 93. Uh, I was living overseas in the United Arab Emirates, actually, and friend of a friend, you know, guy I knew, his brother brought us over to his house and said, hey, you got to play this game because I need players and, you know, you're not total losers, so we're going to bring you in on this. And like most introductory sessions, it was dumb and stupid and a bunch of teenagers, you know, playing Circle Jerk, but it was absolutely amazing and fun and awesome at the same time. Um, I think I came away from it going, man, I totally peed on a fire elemental and lived to tell the tale. So I was hooked from the beginning. Um, But like many, many DMs that I've run into over the years, I was also drawn into the game because after that first session, my friends said, yeah, forget my brother. We don't want to play with him anymore. Well, we need somebody to run the game. And so they handed me the book and they said, we want you to play. We want you to run the game. And I had no idea what I was doing, Um, but I just said, sure, let's go for it. Uh, You know, fast forward 20 years later, um, that's still what I'm doing. You know, my life has been up and down all over the rails in the past 20 years, right? So graduated high school, went off to college, um, worked in the fast food industry, restaurant industry, joined the National Guard, traveled overseas twice. Uh, my degree is in English and philosophy, but I'm a logistics engineer. Go figure. Like, I'm all, literally all over the map, but, like, the one common thread throughout all of it is that I'm an avid Dungeons & Dragons fan. And for me, it's as much a 
part of my identity and my lifestyle as you know any other element of my life and i hold all of them all of those elements all those defining elements of myself to be in high regard um i don't consider myself to be a mover and shaker in the industry so i i have to say thank you for putting me up at that level um i don't consider myself to be all that significant because i'm just an amateur writer i'm just an amateur dm who latches on to ideas that I think are good, and then I try to explain to other people why I think those ideas are good, and I try to show them why I think those ideas are good, and then we go from there. Okay, fair enough. How about you, Alexis? Uh, well, I began running in 1979. Uh, I was involved first off in D&D right away, but with a Within six months, I was playing Empire of the Petal Throne and Rollmaster and Traveler. And then we moved on to just about everything else that we could find. And for about five or six years, I played a wide variety of games. And I attended some cons back in the 1980s. And I didn't much like them because I didn't like the culture. And then I more or less just settled into playing D&D all the time. And I have been an avid player and designer of D&D and role-playing games since then. But I'm not really interested in, in inventing new role-playing games, which I consider to be just reinventing the wheel. I'm much more interested in just refining and upgrading D&D to a level that adults can't or wouldn't be ashamed of it. Uh, at the same time, I've spent a lot of time as a journalist. I've spent a lot of time as a theater performer. I've acted in movies. Uh, I have an IMDb listing. I've done lots of free writing for, for people um, involved in ghostwriting. And uh, like Carl, I'm also a, I'm also a cook. Uh, I've also trained as a chef. So uh, I have a wide range. And um, my degree is in classical history and archaeology. So. I'm pretty eclectic. All right. Awesome. All right. So we brought you guys together tonight because we all share a love of role playing. Scott and I are both gamers. We've both been doing it for a lot of years. I started about the same time as Carl. <clears throat> I think I started in, in 1994 playing and by 95, I was behind the screen. Um, and, and I've been doing it on and off for the last, you know, 20 plus years. Um, but where I used to be very focused on D&D, that was what I played. I have lately in the last five or six years, I have played a, a wide variety of games. Um, anything from superhero games to D&D to, you know, D&D type games with Pathfinder and things such as that. Uh, into the horror genre. I've gotten heavily into the horror genre in the last 10 years with uh, Call of Cthulhu and, and games of that type. But uh, so that's kind of my background, um, as well as I do do the circuit um, uh, of conventions where I will either run games or I have done a couple panels at conventions on different things. But um, this year uh, at an upcoming convention in January, Scott and I are actually running the Call of Cthulhu tournament, which is going to be very interesting, I think. Um, but so that's kind of my background. Scott, what about you? Um, I've been gaming. I first got into it in college back in the late 80s. And my first exposure actually was uh, Champions back when Iron Crown Enterprises had it. 
So um, the superhero game has always been more my style. I've done D&D here and there, but my fantasy role-playing stuff was actually more uh, Middle Earth and Rollmaster, um, that stuff. And then since Carl introduced the two of us, um, I've done more D&D and Call of Cthulhu with you and some of the other guys around central Wisconsin. Yep. So, all right, so let's look at this as a, at our hobby as just that, gaming as a hobby. Now, I know there's dissent out there amongst the four of us talking here tonight, but to me, gaming is a hobby. And I know, for one, I know, Carl, you disagree with me. And I'll, I'll give you a, a minute here in a, in a second here to, to give your um, thoughts on this as well. But to me, it's a hobby. It's a part of who I am. It's a part of what I do. But to me, it's a hobby because I don't make money from doing this. In fact, I, I spend a lot of money doing this, <laughs> and I don't make so much doing this. Uh, you know, but it, it, it's part of my identity, as Carl said when he was talking about his gaming background on the on on his uh, intro. But to me, it's just a hobby. What about you, Scott? Is is it a hobby? Is it a lifestyle? Is it something more to you? Well. For me, it, it's a hobby, but I also use it. Um, I'm a high school English teacher, so I actually use it um, occasionally with uh, some students who are hard to reach in traditional settings. So if they are having trouble writing or they don't want to write or they don't like the books that have been selected for them, then I bring in some of my stuff. And I've actually had kids do reports on... Um, things like sample scenarios from the player's handbook or from the DMG. Um, had them create characters and actually develop a campaign setting instead of doing a creative writing piece where they were supposed to write a short story about a boy and his dog or something like that. So to me, it's a little bit more of the creativity outlet. Carl, how about you? See, so one of the things that pops to mind right now is um, the Band of Brothers. If you've seen that little, what, HBO miniseries? I think it was HBO. Um, Band of Brothers had a really great scene in one of the early episodes where they had the planning scenario for the launch on Normandy. And that planning scenario was, Matt, like if the launch on Normandy was just insanely massive, right? But that planning scenario was every officer and every senior NCO who could have possibly had a stake in the game were gathered around a giant sand table, which is just, you know, literally a sandbox that they had uh, uh, sculpted into the shape of the, the Normandy beach. And there was one junior officer who was going from each officer and NCO to the next and saying, okay, now now your unit is going up and what are you guys doing? And now your unit is going up and what are you guys doing? Like it was exactly like a mass battle for a role-playing game. What I mean by that is if you take a look at the history of D&D, where it comes from, it comes from war games. And the history of war games is, the his, is military history because there, I think... Alexi, I'm going to have to lean on you for this one. Was it the Prussians who developed this? 
depressions uh, the, the concept of war game? Right, the concept of war gaming as a way to train junior officers and senior NCOs in mass battle techniques. Well, you could argue that Gustavus Adolphus did that as well, but I think the kind of gaming that we have, you have to go to the Rand Corporation in the 1950s and the 1960s. I don't think you can draw a connection between what they were doing two centuries ago and what we're doing. But the Rand Corporation was definitely doing what we're doing before there were such things as, as role-playing games. So I, I think I think you can draw a, cor a connection between them all the way back to that military history tradition, but I'd have to go back and double-check my sources on it. Regardless, that's what comes to my mind when we talk about the possibility or the, the, the what I'm hearing from the background and the connections here is the idea that you know, can role-playing be used outside of just the hobby realm? Can it be used in any other capacity or context? And I say, yes, absolutely it can. Um, there's the, the idea of playing a role in uh, psychology as a way of like uh, a therapy technique. There's role-playing in a military context as a planning tool. There's this creative exercise that can be used in an educational concept. Um, so to me, it's more than just a hobby. Now, does that mean that it should be more than just a hobby for everybody? No, absolutely not. If, if that's what it is to you, great. That's fantastic. I'm just saying that I find that it can easily be applied to a bunch of other professional and non-professional areas to the point where it is as much a way of life for some people as it is anything else. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Alexi, what do you? What is your take on this? Is gaming a hobby, or is it something beyond that? I, I was gonna say, uh, I can make quilts in my basement. I can make them. I can make, you know, multiple quilts in my basement, and I can do it for my friends and family. I can do it as a hobby, or I can make quilts and I can make it as an artwork, or I can make quilts and it becomes a business. I'm not really clear why there's a necessity to define D and D in a specific manner. I mean, it's a, okay, so it's a hobby for you. That's fine. Uh, that in no way defines it as a hobby for everybody or even for the person sitting next to you. Uh, does it have an application to something other than D&D? Absolutely. Uh, I've learned tremendous amounts about, about history and armor and the development of, of technologies throughout that, that same history. I've learned a lot about um, managing human beings and business management and accounting and so on and so forth through, through running games and running complicated D&D &D games. Um, I've applied at, at, in places where I've worked as a manager, I have applied D&D tactics to dealing with my, my employees. Um, there's, there's no end to the applications of D&D, &D, but then that can be said about any, any other subject. If I sit down and write books, there's going to be other applications than simply writing books. If I, if I make quilts, there's going to be other applications than just making quilts. Anytime we give ourselves a skill, we can apply that skill to a lot of other things. There's no, there's no telling how many. So I'm really not clear on the need for the definition. There isn't necessarily a need for a definition. It was just something I was I was just kind of throwing out there based on talks that Carl and I have had in the past, and uh, just trying to get everybody's take on it. And the and the fact that you don't see a need to define it, that's your take on it, and that's great. Uh, I I don't think I don't 
I don't think I was looking so much for a definition of it as more as to what the thought processes out there were. Sure, I get that. But I think that some people are going to think that if we define it as a hobby, which ha which is a, to, to some groups of people a loaded word, it, it, it means something that is frivolous and unimportant and doesn't really matter. I think for some people, we're going to define it as a hobby. They're going to see that as a justification for making it less important in people's lives. And some people are going to take umbrage to that because they're going to feel that you're, even if you, you want to argue that it's a hobby for you, they're going to feel that you're diminishing what it is to them. I mean, I've, I've sat at a table and sold my book, which is about this hobby, and I've made, you know, money sitting at that table. I've made quite a lot of money sitting at that table selling the book to people who are emotionally desperate for information about a game, which is clearly more than just something frivolous to them. And very often we, we're in a world where people disparage other people's activities by saying, oh, that's not important. It's only their hobby. Like, who cares? That it, it has no value to anybody because it's only a hobby. So as soon as you start to define something, you also give it a value in people's minds because people define words with value. So your argument would be that we shouldn't define it as anything, a hobby or otherwise, it just is part of what- It just is. And, and because you're, you're, creating, you're creating a judgment. As soon as you give it, a, as soon as you give it a label, even if the label is a positive one, you're still making a judgment. I'd like to add in on that too that I've experienced a certain kind of cognitive dissonance uh, in people in general. And when I say in people in general, I mean just people that I've met in my life, where you could be having a conversation with one person about football, and that person will be able to tell you you know, ratings of current teams and stats on players, and they'll have all kinds of valuable information, well, valuable to anyone who studies football or, or follows it, uh, and, and they'll have that information going back like 20 years. But then that same person knows next to nothing about baseball and certainly knows nothing about chess or maybe even about fixing cars. Um, so that person then would have a conversation with somebody who does fantasy baseball. So you have the fantasy football player who knows all the football stats, and you have the fantasy baseball players who have the baseball stats. They're talking past each other because neither one sees the other hobby as valuable or worth each other's time. I've seen those conversations. Is that an artifact of the label of it, or is that a... a failing in the outlook of the two people involved. So I, I think it's both. And the reason that I you I bring that up as a comparison with that, you know, just it is because I bring that up as a comparison because most people in our culture, American culture, I think in Canadian culture too, I'm not as familiar, but North American culture for sure, people have a tendency to see an activity like sports as being a normal thing to engage in. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a sports fan, and I know all these weird, odd statistics, and I can rattle them off in casual conversation, and most people don't even bat an eye. Whereas if I bring up something about the construction of castles, or I talk about armor or weapons, people give me the stink eye. 
most of the time. Like that's just odd. That's just weird. If I well, mention statistically, statistically, <laughs> yes. But then if I, that's that's what matters. Is statistically, you are in the minority. You are odd. You are weird because there aren't that many people. If but, if if it was if there were stadiums built for people fighting each other in armor, you'd be perfectly normal and accepted. Whereas if you went to one of the conventions and started talking fantasy football, people would look at you like you were odd. But there is a difference between bringing up things about like medieval uh, culture. Or there's a difference between bringing that up or bringing up chess. Or if you tell people like, I, like I'm a big fan of cribbage, I'm a big chess player or something like that. That has far less stigma, even though statistically, how many people play chess? Or how many people play chess with that level of fanaticism? Well, uh, they, it, they also go back a lot further, right? Chess has had time to establish itself in the culture. So has cribbage, so has bridge, and so have many card games and so on. I mean, even if the number of people playing cards is diminishing, the number of references you can see in artworks of people and things, dogs, and so on and so forth playing cards is much higher than the number of, like, meaningful cultural references to people playing role-playing games and the media has seriously bashed role-playing games for the last 40 years and it's not surprising that since those things have almost never been represented positively on the media that people's natural reaction is to react to what they know from the media and not what you know from the games that you play oh alexi are you telling us that uh, the dnd movie was not positive of the hobby <laughs> Oh, I mean, take a take a really good example that the Big Bang Theory's recent uh, demonstrations, various demonstrations of D and D, which are absolutely and in no way indicative of the way that D and D is played. I mean, they they're not even in the same ballpark, and yet nerds still think it's wonderful because at least they're mentioning D and D, and if it's completely off the rails. But most people, I mean, it's a very popular show. They're looking at nerds. They think, oh, well, that's what D&D is. And it absolutely isn't. It's, it's embarrassing. Now, while it may be embarrassing, do you think it's harmful yes. to the, the hobby as a whole? Or do you think that by presenting it in this more or less harmless manner to a popular mainstream audience who really have no basis of comparison do you think that might be not that the image needs it but do you think that might be almost rehabilitating the image of dnd getting it away from the prior stereotypes of dangerousness and um warping of young minds that for a lot of people going back to the original topic having it being as a hobby making it seem like something that doesn't carry the weight that a lot of people were afraid it carried in certain uh, segments of the population. Do you think as lousy as this representation is, it has some merit? No, <laughs> uh, I, I understand what you're saying, that at least it's more positive than when we were talking about it being devil worship and um, movies like Mazes and Monsters that came out in 82 and all of that horror show that, that was part of that culture back then. But inaccuracy is still inaccuracy. Uh, if, if we were presenting extreme sports on television as inaccurately as we're presenting RPGs on television, 
then the extreme sports organization would be stepping forward to say, no, it's not like that. It is absolutely not in any way like that. And we're offended by that completely irrational and illogical depiction of the thing that we do and that we love. And yet nothing happens. Nobody comes forward and gives any kind of a rational or reasonable or meaningful explanation of what any role-playing game is to the media. And nobody's asking for that. When Gygax okay. was, was, was interviewed by 60 Minutes, he didn't even talk about role-playing games. Mostly he just talked about the company and his personal belief and feeling about being the entity that he was. But he didn't really talk about role-playing at all. It was, again, just embarrassing. About the most that I see in the way of, uh, say, blowback or reaction to popular depictions is entirely localized. It's conversations amongst friends. It's conversations that end up online on Reddit or in forums or something like that. It's when Stranger Things came out and the first episode depicted the character of 13-year-old kids playing a game of D&D. The you know the online community responded with, "There's no way they were playing that they were playing the game right because you can't have Demo Gorgon fighting against a bunch of like seventh level characters or something like that or twelfth level. I don't even know what level they were. But the point is that that's the kind of reaction that we get to these popular media depictions is either, oh, it's nice that somebody is actually acknowledging that we exist, or it's quibbling about the finer details of." a game that you can change the rules of from table to table. So like, why does that matter? Well, because it's still not doing the research. It's no, no, like right. Not that's exactly my point. <laughs> that's my point. The only, thing, the only thing that the community wants to quibble about are things that are inconsequential. In, in other words, it's like, it's like their reaction is just as inconsequential as the depiction that is being thrown out there. It's inaccurate. Uh, it doesn't have any meaning. And it certainly doesn't address the hobby from the point of view of being an, a legitimate adult grown-up activity. A respected legitimate. <laughs> I, I would have to disagree with that because my personal thought is if a group like the Big Bang Theory uh, TV show, they come out and they depict role-playing, okay? And yes, it's not the way that it's going to happen if any of the four of us sit down at a table. But what if that depiction at least brings somebody to the hobby? And once they get to the hobby, we can teach them how it really works. But it's, it's a driving force that might bring more people to the hobby, a hobby that is by and far becoming older as we speak. It's, it's really hard to bring new people into it. Wouldn't something like the Big Bang Theory uh bring bringing more people in younger people in should it matter how they depict it i mean they're not depicting it as they're out drinking baby's blood they're not doing that depiction of it they're depicting it as a group of guys getting around a table having fun well they're depicting it as a joke they're depicting it as a joke they're depicting it as something you point at and laugh at not something you laugh with so i don't think they're depicting people having fun i think they're depicting people acting like morons but, but Scott is talking about being a, an English teacher and he's got students in his class who obviously already know what D&D is or what role-playing games are. And they certainly didn't get it from the Big Bang Theory. I don't think that we, we are in any way relying on any media 
television to sell the game to individuals or expand the number of people playing. I think when you're 13, you're going to, by the time you're 13, you're already going to have stumbled into more than enough people who are playing that you're going to be into it long before you see any depiction on television. Okay, then let me ask you this. Do you agree with me that the fact that our, our hobby is getting older day by day? There's not as many new people coming into it. Uh, I don't have any statistics for that. I know that's a general feeling, but until I see statistics, as far as I know, I still know 12-year-olds who are playing, so I have no idea what that means. That that just is a feeling. I'm not seeing. I, I mean, when I was when I was at when I was at um, Expo in Toronto, and when I was at a con here in Edmonton, I didn't notice any lesser number of people who were very young who who knew what D and D was, and they certainly had thirty dollars in their pockets to pull it out and buy my book, even though they were 15 and 16 years old. So I don't, I don't really understand where that's coming from. I don't think it's coming from you, Chad, but I have heard that many times. And yet I've also heard that for the last 20 years. And yet here the game is still being played, still being talked about, still everywhere. Okay. But then I, let me, let me, let me change the question slightly then. How do we bring new players in? Do we have to? <sighs> Well, no, if we so want you, if we want the hobby players? to survive, yes. I mean, eventually, if we don't bring new players in, it goes away. Nobody ever talks so, about this with football. Nobody sits around and says, "How do we get new football players? How do we get young people interested in football? Why why do, why why is it anybody's responsibility to? I mean, they're they're playing and they'll find the game. I don't think it's anybody's responsibility to bring more people in. To look at your football analogy, professional sports play play it back. Professional sports pays an awful lot more money than gaming does. Now, granted, it pays it to fewer people, but there's always that um, belief in the system that if you work hard and become a professional athlete, then your financial future is secured. There really isn't a corollary to that with the gaming industry. So I disagree. No, so I agree with you. You are correct that there's no corollary to the gaming industry because the, you know, because Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games are not as entrenched in our culture as sports are, and that's where like the the analogy and the comparison kind of works against, you know, the the arguments that we're that I'm trying to make here for sure. Um, we have football in our schools down in the junior high level down the junior varsity level I, mean, I didn't play so i honestly don't know but my point is is that they exist there in middle school and high school and we encourage our kids to be involved in it uh, because of the cultural significance of it but also because of the team building of the camaraderie of the physical activities and other things like that um as far as a corollary though outside of the cultural significance i believe that there is a strong corollary between role-playing games and everything else that exists out in life i and, and and this goes back to what we were talking about before about you know is it a hobby or is it a way of life or what is it um scott you use it in education you know alexi you were talking about using uh skills learned in role-playing in other avenues of life and i can say that i've learned to apply other skills in my life to the role-playing game. So I think that there's a very strong corollary there. Um, I can definitely point to management skills, interpersonal conflict 
resolution skills, uh, creative thinking. I apply logical, rational decision-making processes to my role-playing games when I create complex spreadsheets that help me to manage the game better and to provide more information for the players at the table, stuff like that. Um, but then to bring it back around to, so, so what I'm trying to get at here is that there is a strong correlation to, from role-playing games to real life and from real life to role-playing games in its complexity, in all of the different ways that they mimic each other. I'd also like to point out, though, when we were talking about how do you bring people into it, the, this, the game that I'm running now, first game I've picked up in like eight years, is entirely new players, entirely new players. And it was brought about simply because I had a conversation with a friend at work, and I said, I like doing this stuff. And he's like, I've heard about that, and I've never done it. And I said, we should get some people together. And so he did. He did the recruiting and brought these players in. And it is absolutely working for them. They're all mid-20s to mid-30s. They're not young kids. So based on my personal experience, especially like Alexi is saying, I don't see that the hobby is going to die out at any time. And I don't know that it really requires a, a cultural backing or, or integration in order to be successful. It'd be nice, though, if we could get some of that integration and backing and some of that recognition. Well, I'd like to add that I don't want to beat this horse dead, but I didn't learn to play football in in, le in leagues. I didn't learn to play football in by organized sports. I learned to play football because of the kids were playing football, right? I learned to play football because my, my dad bought bought me, a, I learned to play baseball because my dad bought me a club, not because I knew anything about leagues or anything. I was playing baseball before I was six. So I, I don't see that as a corollary at all. And as far as the connection between games and, and football, yeah, I'd say there is a difference. And that's that football is small time. Gaming was an $80 billion industry last year. It may be all in video games, but the principles and practices in role-playing games are the same principles and practices in video games. And people who make and design and create video games and make millions of dollars doing that come from a background where they started playing role-playing games as kids. So you can't say that I have to, you know, that there's no comparison because yeah, you're right, there's no comparison. Sports are dying. And the internet is steadily killing viewership of sports. Games are the future. All right. You so, have to add, sorry, you have to add to that, though, that the physical aspect of sports is also going to be a, a rather significant impact there. Yeah. Like, FTTE is scaring the hell out of people. I will teach my kids to play role-playing games. I've got a Raspberry Pi for my son so that he can play Super Mario Brothers. I'll be less inclined to put a helmet on his head and tell him to go run into a brick wall a bunch of times. I mean. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. All right. So let's, let's go on to a, a slightly different topic. So now, Alexi, you consider role-playing almost an art form. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah, I would consider it performance art. I mean, people might not be thinking about that while they're doing it, but you are attempting to create an emotional response by what Scott recalled or referred to as a creative activity. So that, that creation of an emotional response, that's definitively art. Okay, so 
let let's talk a little bit about your <coughs> your take on how role playing is. Now I know you've worked and have created beyond the D and D book. So you got yeah. you got your core book and you've taken that and you've gone beyond that. Give us a little insight into what how you've changed the game and the way you play it. Um, there's a there's a general attitude to, uh, against rules in the game that too many rules ruin the game and that what we need is a more streamlined rule system that will enable people to um, that will enable people to react more quickly to playing the game. Uh, I strongly disagree with this. I think that a streamlined rule set limits the number of choices that you can make as a player because we only have rules to cover the choices that you can make. If if you can think of rules as like the, the walls within uh, a given video game, and the rules are the boundaries within the video game that you are walking in, if you only have a minimal number of rules, then you can only have a minimal number of rooms that you can enter. If you want more rooms, then you need to have more rules that define or explain your actions within those rooms. Right now, role-playing games are trapped in a framework that it says there only need to be rules that define what your character is, how your character interacts with other things, how your character fights other things, and what your character can find and discover in the world. But that is almost all of the rule set that exists. But when it comes down to act, reacting with other people, there's almost no rules that cover details like how to control or run a business or a complicated framework. Uh, let, let's say you want to run a country. There are no rules for how to run a country. If you wanted to run a town, there are no rules for how to run a town. You can take over a town, but the DM has absolutely nothing to help him tell you what what happens once the town is in your possession. No rules whatsoever. There's almost no rules to describe travel beyond the very basic means of A to B. What does travel actually do to your character, or or what are the what kind of limitations are are made by say nutrition? There are no rules for that. Uh, what kind of rules are made for uh, wanting to make more money by means of, of uh, an aggressive policy of, of, of altering the world? If you want to go do mining, for example, there's no rules for that. Uh, there are, or rather, there are very simple rules for that that are pretty boring after you've played them for an hour or so. Uh, there are so many aspects of D&D, and if you look at video games as they're coming out, that are trying to cover more and more and more subjects, then you see that, that role-playing is really dragging behind the opportunities that are there. Uh, you can make rules for anything that will enable a person to play that particular game, but if there are no rules, then it's very difficult for the players to make a rational decision about what they're doing. So you think, your, your thought process is, and I'm gonna try to streamline this, but your thought process is more rules is a good thing. More opportunity. Where a lot of games now, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about D and D here. D and D fifth ad has really streamlined the rules. They've made it feel very rules light. 
as yeah. compared to some of the other systems that uh, D&D has put out, um, most specifically 3.5. I think that was probably the crunchiest of all the systems. Yes, I would agree. But it was also a lot of, it wasn't so much that it was a lot of rules, that, that it's that it was a lot of bad rules. It was a lot of ill-thought-out rules, a lot of rules that didn't enable but rather disabled the participants. Those rules needed to go because they talked about what you couldn't do as opposed to what you could do. They didn't expand your options, they limited them. And they did so because they turned every aspect of the game into a die roll. Rules need to be more than that. How do your rules take... It almost sounds like you're trying to get to a point where you take the rules, the dice out of the player's hands. Uh, you want to have some dice because you want things to be uncertain, like at a craps table at Las Vegas. You don't make craps better by getting rid of the dice. But you do want, you do want the players to be able to control how the rules affect their actions. If I, if I want to make an underwater campaign, all right, which is a which is a notable area where there are so very very few rules. I would agree with that. Then the players need to know how movement works. They need to know how they can travel from one part of the the the, the world to another part. How they can control that movement. How the rules define their limitations and their possibilities, and give them options for taking an innovative stance against an aggressor or against another a, a situation. You need to have some kind of structure in which the players move in that. But that structure, while it, it, it needs to be made of rules, needs to be open rules, not rules that say you can't do this and you can't do this. And unless you roll a die, you can't do this. What you need is a rule that says, all right, if you're wearing this and you're walking and you're moving this and you're carrying this, this is how fast you move. That's what you need. But do the rules need to be, does everybody at the table need to know those rules or do just the, the, the DM need to know those rules? Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really, really good point. Uh, one of the reasons why the players don't know the rules is because we're still doing everything in paper. Why are we doing everything in paper? All those rules should be accessible by your phone. The players should all have their phones out at the table looking at the rules as they're playing. Why wouldn't they do that? Why wouldn't the rules all be in, in, in format that we can look at anywhere? Why are we still doing things in paper where the question comes up, well, how are the players supposed to learn all of these rules since the rules are in somebody's book that are in somebody's basement that can't be shared immediately to everybody on earth? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Can Why? we go? Can we go out and find your rules online? Yeah, I put. I, I when I make rules and I finalize them, I put them on my wiki, which is uh, tau at wikispaces.com. And um, if there's more than a thousand pages on the wiki, and I try to to keep updating those house rules as often as I come up with new ideas. Okay. Okay. And, and I can speak from a little experience on that, too. I've been using uh, that rule set in combination with some house rules of my own. And initially, when I set my players up, they said, well, we, we want to get a book. I said, OK, I'll, I'll get you a rough draft of what I think the rules are going to. And I said, it's going to be very, very rough. I handed them like 100 pages. 
and it was mostly just on building characters. And they and one person showed up at the table with a printed copy, and I said, "Good effort." Here's the updated version because a week later I'd already made some changes to it. And now they're using their phones and their tablets at the table. I gave them an Excel spreadsheet, you know, character sheet that has the calculations built into it. Because when I introduced, the, when I said I want to use exhaustion rules and this is how it works, your character loses hit points, you get exhausted and your stats start to drop and you have to do these calculations. One guy at the table had a little portable whiteboard and he was doing the numbers in front of him but i mean he counts numbers for a job for a living so it's easy for him to do it um but when i introduced the character sheet the very next week he was like nope this is this my phone is way easier i'm just doing everything on an excel character sheet now um i i've seen a lot of tools online that are geared toward fostering that kind of technological approach you know, digital copies copies of the rules that are indexed and bookmarked so you can find stuff quickly. And I've seen people sharing character sheets and stuff like that. We've got tools that let us run games across the country. The issue that I'm finding with a lot of these, though, is that they're not customizable. So if if you go to a manufacturer who has a D&D tabletop, digital tabletop, and it has all of 5th edition rules piled in there. That's great if you are running exactly 5th edition. But it doesn't take a genius to realize that all role-playing games fall short of the mark. Because, um, quite frankly, I, as much as I admire Alexi's work, there are still areas where I disagree with some of the rules that he has listed because I think differently and I run my game different or because there are some areas that he hasn't defined the rules yet and I need it defined because my players are asking those questions so I got to come up with something I can't use a digital D&D tabletop because I don't have the capacity the capability to load my rules into it so I have to customize everything which means I pretty much have to build it from scratch it's frustrating because this is the 21st century we should be, this game should be operating at a much higher level. It, it actually. Okay, now I'm kind of on board with you guys with the electronic copies, phones and tablets at the table. As I said, I'm an English teacher. You're going to get my books away from me when you pry them out of my cold, dead hands. But. I'm a little concerned by something that you mentioned, Carl, which is you gave your players the rough draft and you had the one who had the printed copy and you said, great, here are the updates. My concern with that, and it may have been a little bit of an exaggeration on your part to make the point, and if, if so, that may change my question and your answer, but do you think that having so much flexibility and so much turnover in the rules can be detrimental to the game because the players may not understand or have a really good idea from week to week, game to game, what the rules are. So, so I agree. Actually, I do agree with you. Um, and the reason I say I agree is because I've run a couple of sessions where there's been uh I don't know, like two official updates. And 
what I've learned about that is what is, is very similar to what I've learned in the business world when you are working on documents that are shared amongst team members for a project, that you have to control the flow of information. You cannot, uh, you can't, you can't hand them a book that says like, okay, here's a hundred pages of the rules, and then you play, you know, for like one session, and then you hand them another fifty pages and say, oh, here's a whole bunch of new rules. Oh, and by the way, fifty of the old pages were rewritten because no, you can't do that. That's that's information's flowing too fast. You got to space it out. Um, but that's that's also complicated by the fact that I'm building my rule set as I'm running the game. If I had an established rule set that I had, you know, like a good 10, 20 years behind and everything had already been written down and play tested with other groups, introducing a new group of players would be different. In that case, what I would do is I would hand pick a few rules and hand it over to them and say, okay, we're going to use these rules for a few sessions, five, six, whatever might be a good number. And as the sessions go by, I'm going to be evaluating their competency, their ability to respond to questions. You know, hey, you're a fighter, you're an orc fighter, and you're up against a bugbear, and there are two of them in the tree, and how, what's their rate of fire, and how fast can you move with the armor and the weapons that you're carrying? And if they can come back with responses in a timely manner, like they can either look it up or they can just tell me what it is, that tells me that they are handling the rules. They're handling what they've been given so far, so then we can start introducing more stuff. If they're coming to me and asking lots of questions, hey, I really, you said something interesting in my background about um, how I've got like a relationship with local merchants. Can I do anything with that? Why, yes, you can. Here, have a, a section of rules that deal with interacting with merchants and building a mercantile empire, stuff like that. Very low key stuff because you're still low level, but let's get those neurons firing and get you thinking about that. Um, this to me is one of the things that's so fantastic about this game is that you can play at different skill levels. And I think it's, I think it's fair that we start talking about playing D and D as amateur expert and beyond I, like the, the BECMI version, you know, that they, they actually, that's a format that actually, I think has some merit to it, they, you know, beginner expert, et cetera, et cetera. I'd really like to weigh in on this. Uh, uh, two points. Uh, uh, Scott, first of all, um, if you are upfront with your players while you're changing the rules, if everything is clear and concise and you're telling them exactly what the rule change is, and at the same time, you have an attitude that, do you like this rule change and will this work? If you have players that trust you and you are always forward and when something doesn't work, you're prepared to step back and say, well, that didn't work, let's stop doing that. Then you will have players who will step forward with you and go, yeah, that sounds like that sounds good. Let's try that. Let's see how that works. And so you're always in a beta testing mode where you're always trying something new and seeing with, with the attitude that everybody here at the table is making the final decision about whether or not this rule is going to work. So if I'm presenting a rule, it's not an ad hoc, everybody has to take this and there's no change. It's more of a group collaboration on what that rule is gonna be. In addition to that, in terms of playing the game itself, the rules are, I, I try to make the rules absolutely established during the course of the game itself. Once the game has started, once the session has started, there won't be any rule changes during the game. 
But you and me and everybody who has ever played role-playing games knows that something's going to come up for which there are no rules. And at that point, it is very important not to just have the DM go, well, it's this, and hand wave it and, and argue by DM fiat and say that it will be thus because I have spoken and you will all you know, count out to me. What's important is for the DM to say, well, I think it might be this, or we might try this, or what do you think of this idea? I think that if, if we, we play it that way, do you guys agree? Does that work for you? And we get feedback and we discuss it for five or 10 minutes and nobody is bored during this conversation because everybody knows that their opinion matters. And because I'm doing this all electronically, as soon as they have made a decision, I can load up my wiki, which is on my computer, it takes a couple of seconds. I can create a new page on that wiki and give it a title, it takes a couple of seconds and I can write on the wiki, Da, da 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 here's the rule. Everybody is watching me type the rule in because they're seeing my wiki on a screen that faces them. They all agree with my wording. Boom, we're back to the game. And in future, that rule is now set and it is precedent that follows through every other game that I play. So if you are establishing precedents in an open and direct manner, you can change rules fabulously quickly. In fact, people wanna change the rule and people will come to the game and say, you know, I think we could do this better. What do you think about that? And if I have some trouble with it, I'll say, well, I'll give it some thought and come back to them. And if I think it's a good idea, I'll implement it right then and there. I mean, why shouldn't I? It's a good idea. We need to be more flexible. We're way too inflexible with this game. We need to be more flexible. Rules as written is a stupid idea. <laughs> Would you want to live in a world where the law was established as written? where you, there was no movement to go to a lawyer and have a law challenge because it was it didn't work in a given situation. Why would we pretend that a role-playing game was any less complicated than the law? It is also about people. It is about people interacting with people. It has all the possibilities that the real world has. So we need to have a precedent system in place where everybody can discuss it, agree on it, a judgment can be made, everybody can establish that that precedent will exist in the future, and the reliability of the game is sustained without anybody feeling that they've been misused. It's called legitimacy. My one concern with the amount of, <clears throat> amount of rules is how does any one person, you, anybody else at, the, at your table, know all the rules at all the times? It's called a search engine. Well, I get that, but... Well, it's a search engine. You look it up. If it's on an electronic system, while I am looking up one thing, another character can look up another. It is, it, it, how, how do doctors remember all the stuff that they need to know about the human body that will enable them to make a diagnosis? How do military personnel know all the stuff about a battlefield that will enable them to manage 8,000 people during a war? How will anybody know all the stuff about legislation so that they can be a politician in the moment when somebody stands up in the House of Commons or you know, the, the, the Congress? How do people manage all this complicated stuff? Why is it that in role-playing games, we all think we're all idiots? We play our role-playing game, we can't remember four rule books, and then we go off and we do field jobs where we're lawyers and doctors and engineers, and somehow we remember the, the, the cleavage of every rock form because we're a geologist. Have you seen Dana's book of geology? Do you have any idea how heavy and huge that book is? Or Grove's book of musicology? These are huge, massive tomes. 
Grove's book is, is 60 books that are like four inches thick each. And yet every musicologist I've ever known in the world knows those books by heart. So you can't tell me that people who love this game can't memorize rules. And if you can't, there's a search engine. Okay, fair enough. But then if you've got all these rules and you're coming up with new rules for different situations, doesn't to a certain extent that take away some of the flexibility and spontaneity that we're looking for? Because we're regulating everything into lockstep. No, we're not regulating it into lockstep. Uh, if, if you want to drive a boat on a lake, there are rules that tell you how to drive a boat on the lake because they don't want you to drive your boat into other people's boats. That doesn't make boating less fun. It makes boating more fun because nobody's crashing into other people because everybody is wearing life jackets and everybody has the, 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 the blue and the, and the red light on opposite side of their boat so everybody can see who's going where. Rules don't, don't limit opportunity. They make opportunity happen because nobody's arguing about what this really means. When we didn't have rules in society, we had to fear and be concerned about each other's behavior. Because we have rules, we have freedom. If you take it back to comparing with, uh, say, other games, you know, Alexei mentioned earlier that uh, something about building walls within a game. Um, you know, a good analogy there is going to be like like the early D and D esque dungeon crawl games that were just the black and white pixels on a Commodore 64 and a little stick figure that was supposed to be a skeleton and you only knew it was a skeleton because it had a word skeleton poorly written above it. Um, those games, those games, and this would probably be a bad analogy, but those games put up walls in front of you, but then they didn't do anything else. I mean, they kind of sort of told you, oh, you're on a quest and you're supposed to go somewhere and do something, but there wasn't anything that told you about how you did it or how long it should take you or what what you should do at this corner or who you should talk to or what you should say to them um you know zork is another good one too where you go in in the first game and if you take a left turn instead of a right and you go and talk to somebody they stab you and you die and the game doesn't the game makes no apologies for it either it just doesn't tell you why it happens but you learn from that you're like okay well if i go and do that then i'm gonna die but if i go over here and do this other thing something else happens and there was one game, I think, that had like a little hidden pixel somewhere that allowed you to enter into a hidden room. Those games have rules, right? They are supposed to limit your mobility. But once those rules are in place, then the player is literally free to figure out what he can do. Uh, one, of the most, one of the most popular games that we have today is Minecraft. And Minecraft is completely defined by the fact that it has rules that determine how it functions. It's, it has rules that determine how the internal physics of the Minecraft world operate. And then everything else that everybody else has ever done with that game is like, well, the rules of this game let me jump so high, so let me see what I can do. Oh, wait, if I do this thing first, I can jump a little bit higher. By, by producing rigid guidelines through which there is a certain amount of play, like if you think about your car, there's a certain distance you have to turn the steering wheel before you know the car moves. 
right? You're, you're familiar with the distance between the, the, how much play the steering wheel has before it has an effect on the car's movement. And you know it's different for every other car that's in existence. If you're in somebody else's car, that amount of play in the movement of the wheel is different. But that doesn't mean the car doesn't have specific rules about how it turns left or right. It does. It's just that within those rules, if you turn it thus far, it's definitely going to turn. You have an amount of play. And that's the meaning of play, is that you have an amount of play that you can, you can do in that movement that is the decision of how well you drive your car. Because you can, you can put just so much pressure on the gas pedal and just so much pressure turning the wheel to the left or the right. And that amount of play in moving your car determines how good a driver you are. But if you remove the rules of the car so that your car doesn't work as exactly as predicted, then you're useless as a driver. You have no idea what the car is going to do. And this is what people are arguing when they say we want less rules. What they want is less restriction on what they can do. They want to be able to game the system. They want to be able to gank the DM to get the DM to do something because there's no rules that limit it. By creating a rule, you, in, you require expertise in play. And a lot of players who are out there are used to playing a system that doesn't actually require any expertise. And they don't want rules because they don't want any restrictions on cheating. That's their problem. Okay, so... Another thing. Sorry, another quick thing that I, I like to throw out there when, when people discuss about why you would want more rules is so that I, as the DM, remain consistent when I'm running the game. I think that's something that a lot of DMs don't want to admit. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's because they don't want to be honest with themselves or they don't want to be honest with other people or just because they haven't taken the time to ask themselves the question. For me, it's a question of did I resolve this situation right now in the exact same way as I resolved it last session? Because the two situations from that last session to this session are practically the same. Did I apply my judgment accurately in both cases? And as a human being, I am fallible. So by creating rules, we limit ourselves with an eye towards achieving stability and consistency in the game. So it sounds like, and maybe I'm hearing this wrong, but what I'm hearing is you're putting on more rules to make it easier for the players to do what they want to do. But yeah. it also sounds as if those rules are not etched in stone. Yes, no. that's yeah. correct. Those rules are not etched in stone. Those rules can be discussed and improved. What happens when you've got a group, and I don't know how long you've been playing with your group, Alexis. I know when we talked the last time, it was quite a while. Yeah. <clears throat> what happens after 15 years, let's say, and you guys change a rule? Do you have problems with your players falling back on the old rule before it was changed? Never. I've been doing this. I've been changing rules and playing by different rules since I began the game because I, my parents like to change the rules of games that they played, like board games, stock ticker and Monopoly and 
rat race and games that they played. They like to change those rules because if they had a rule they didn't like, they just threw it out and invented a new rule. So I grew up playing board games with that attitude when I was just five and 10 years old. So when I came to D&D, I just immediately began doing that because if there was anything I didn't like, I just threw it out. And I can tell you that in, in 38 years of playing, I have never had any, any consistent party. I've had a few people who came for one session and complained, but I've never had a party where any person who stayed more than a month suddenly had a problem with changing the rules. People want the rules changed. And, and if I can just, if I can de deviate just a little, being able to change the rules is one of the greatest aspects of role-playing games with real people in real time. You can't change the rules with any other game that we play except those that we do in real time. If you're playing a video game and there's something about the video game that you don't like and you haven't got a cheat for it, you're out of luck. There's nothing you can do. But with, with the kind of, of, of intelligence that, in, that is involved in playing D&D in real time, if there's something that somebody thinks of that's better or an improvement on how we're doing it right now, we can implement that and make that change and move forward instantaneously. We don't have to reprogram the game. We don't have to come up with a new version of the game a year and a half later. We can make that change instantaneously. And I believe that there's going to be a change in the video game industry along those lines where it becomes possible to improve the way in which video games are programmed that will enable players to change the programming as they play. That's going to be a huge change in gaming. All right, um, where do we want to go to next? <laughs> have, we, have we overwhelmed you? <laughs> a little bit, but that's, that's the whole point of this is to get another, another view of gaming out there another view of the way the industry is changing or maybe how it should be changing. Well, as far as I know, the industry isn't changing at all. This is just Carl and I in basements working with people who are, who are buying our products and talking to us and, and finding us online and, 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 you know, saying, this is amazing. You're changing our world. You're changing our games. You're changing the way that we do things. I never thought of that. And they're implementing these ideas as they come across it. But this is completely grassroots. Anybody that I've talked to is completely grassroots. Anytime that I've, I've tried to talk to somebody in the industry, all I get is shut down because I am not selling something they can sell. And I, and I agree with that. I, it's definitely a grassroots movement. But is it really any different than what 90% of the DMs out there do already? I change rules all the time. The only difference is, is you're writing them down and I'm not. Well, I think most DMs are wa are, are wallowing. I, I mean, I think that, I mean, how many times have you been in a session where somebody has asked you a question and you don't really have an answer? And you kind of have to pull down and try to come up with something on the spur of the moment because the game really can't move forward, but you don't really have an answer to their question. I'm, I'm in your world and I tell you, well, okay, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go around to the local farms and I'd like to pick up, I've got a wagon that will carry eight tons. So I'd like to carry, I'd like to buy as many potatoes from around here as possible. And I'd like to take them a hundred miles down the road and sell them. How much profit do I make? Do you have an answer for me? How long will it take you to come up with an answer for me? And the answer you, you give me Will that also help you give me an answer for selling 
you know, cloth or gold or the, you know, if I take a 30 sheep to the market, will they give me an answer for that? Do you have any kind of a system that will make those answers consistent enough that it will be worth my while to do something other than just pick up a sword and go kill a monster? And I think most people don't because they don't know where to begin because nobody in the industry cares. They all think if that's what you want to do, you should go play some other game because you shouldn't be playing D&D because we're not going to make any rules for that because that doesn't make any money for us. And I think that's the that's the worst part of this of this whole environment is that there are people like me who are creating rules for these sorts of things because they're tired of being faced with answers they can't give and there's nowhere to turn to that's official and it's and it's not that difficult uh, this is the thing that bugs me absolutely just bothers me no end about the industry especially when you're talking with people uh, you know in the industry in publishing or just online the fans of the game when you say, well, I'd like to have an economic system of some kind that can tell me the value of a potato in Germany versus the value of a potato in France, okay? So what's that going to be? And people respond with, well, well, that's just so, that's so hard. That's so difficult. And what's the benefit of putting in all of that time and labor and effort? And my response is, it's not that much effort. If you want it to be detailed now, and, and for this, I'm going to push it back to Alexi and say, well, Alexi, if you want it to be detailed and based upon real world data, then yes, it probably would take a long time to gather up all of that information. But if you just made up a bunch of numbers and had some kind of like system for deciding randomly what it's going to be, but then once you've decided randomly that Germany is going to have like 10,000 potatoes and France is going to have two, okay, fine, whatever. Once you've written it down, then it's in place. And so what I'm driving at here is that the numbers themselves don't really matter. What matters is the system. What matters is the methodology. It matters what equations you use. We can create the equations with an afternoon and a whiteboard and some markers. Once you've got those equations, you write them down into a program, and then you share that program with people. That's what bothers me, is that it really wouldn't take much more than an afternoon with like an economist and a mathematician. And that's and some of that stuff can be learned just by researching. You got those in your back pocket? I mean, do you do you do you know an economist and a mathematician that you can go, all right, I'm trying to figure this out for my for my role playing game. I'm gonna buy a hundred pound of potatoes in in Roxburg and I'm gonna take them. 80 miles to the west in uh, Talisburg, how much am I going to make? And it doesn't it, – it, it, there's so many variables for every town you go from – because what if you pick them up in Roxburg, but you as a player or as a character don't know that Talisburg has even more potatoes? You're not going to make any money going there. Well, that's right, and, and that's a game, isn't it? I mean, if, if you don't know, but the DM knows, and your goal is to try to figure out the DM's world by ascertaining where the most potatoes are. I'm carrying my eight tons of tomato or of potatoes on my on my cart, 
and I'm casting spells on the potatoes to keep them fresh so I can drag them from town to town, right? Then I have to move on to the next town to try to figure out a better place to sell my potatoes. And that's a game, right? I, I get that's that. A but game. And it's a different question, game, but it's still the same game. But your question was, if I buy these 8,000 pounds of potatoes and I take them 100 miles down the road, how much am I going to make? I can't answer that. As a DM, I'm not going to answer that question, especially if your character doesn't know anything well, about that. You, yeah, yeah, right. And I, that's what I'm saying. Because you can't answer that question, that's a game I can't play. And the point that I was trying to make is that it's really not that difficult to come up with the equations. What's difficult for the industry, what's difficult is changing the mindset of the product that they are offering. Okay, so the industry is focused on offering a traditional product, which is a book. Yeah, they've got PDFs, and yes, there are some programs out there that are supposed to support the books that we use. But they're focused on publishing books, which are stat it's just a collection of words and letters on a page that we are supposed to turn into something. What they should be focusing on instead is supporting the industry with digital products. Uh, what's the term that they use in, in direct downloads for video games? I, on, the term escapes me right now. But the point is, is that you buy the video game and then while you're playing it, a little ad pops up and says, do you want to buy this content for the game to mod your game or something like that? Why, yes, I do. I totally want to shoot you know, zombie cows instead of ponies or something. I want to shoot zombie cows all day long. I'm going to buy that download. So where's the content from Wizards of the Coast that says, hey, we've just developed an upgrade to our economic system. Here's the download that's available on all tablets and smartphones and computers and stuff. We've made rules on how to have kids. We've made rules on how to run relationships. We've made rules on, on, on how to raise a grassroots movement so that I can become a politician. These are all games. These could all be games that we're playing in D&D, but we're not because we're told, well, here's your sword. There's the monster. Go kill it. Now, is D&D limited to that because Wizards is limiting us to that and prior to them TSR? Or is it a case of, and then this actually kind of brings us all the way back to the beginning and talking about it as a hobby or lifestyle, but is part of the reason that the mainstream publishers have not come out with this material. And, and you alluded to it when you say that there's no money to be made from it. Is that because your average player doesn't want that material because they want the excitement of the battle? They want the vicarious thrill of being the hero. Maybe they don't want to become an economic powerhouse by manipulating the markets because by day they're already a stockbroker or they work in a bank and they don't want to deal with equations and economic fluctuations in the commodities markets. They just want to go hit something. You're absolutely right, Scott. But the question you just asked is a business model question. The question you just asked is, is there a customer for the product if we make the product? The question you're asking is not, do players want it? You're asking, do enough players want it to make it financially valuable? And the fact is, is we don't know. But the WOTC doesn't believe there is. 
because they have the resources to make rules of enormous possibility and design. But I could argue just as reasonably, is there room for, is there room in the, mar in the video game market in say 1995 to invent a game that enables people to play with a doll's house? And most people at the time would have probably said, no, why would anyone want to play with a dollhouse? Dollhouses are for little children and they're boring. Why would anybody find any interest in that kind of gaming experience? But of course, somebody believed that it was. Will Wright raised the money and made The Sims. It destroyed the industry and made millions of women in, interested in video games and completely rebuilt our perspective and perception of what video games could provide as an experience. Businesses are not the place we go to for innovation because they fail at it. But the control that this particular business has over the market, it is a monopoly. It is the only business. And the fact that they present their propaganda at cons consistently and all the time means that there's hardly any room for any other voice in the experience. And so there are lots of opportunities that we're not experiencing simply because they're not, they're not consumer driven in the, in the mindset of the people who are right now controlling the game. I have no idea whether or not there are enough people who would be interested in the trade system. I know that I've built a trade system. I know that as a small, unimportant little guy, I have people who give me Patreon dollars in order to have access to my trade system. And they do it every month because I update that trade system every month. And those people who, who buy it from me, none of them complain. They all go, this is amazing. I want to see more. So if I can sell something at $10 a month on Excel, just imagine what a real company could do with real resources and the ability to make it look far prettier than what I can make. There's, there's huge room for movement in here, but the people who are in control are only interested in what's worked so far. They're not interested in trying something new. I watched, um, I watched a movie recently, a, a biopic called The Founder. It's about Ray Kroc and the founding of McDonald's. If you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. Um, God, who is the actor? Michael Keaton? Yeah. yeah. But I, I love just about every movie that that guy is in. It's fantastic. Um, the beginning of the movie has Ray Kroc going about trying to sell these milkshake machines to these drive-in diners. And he keeps telling people, make the, make the product. Make the, make the product flow and the demand will catch up to it. He keeps telling those restaurant owners, the reason you don't have more demand is because you don't have the capacity to meet the demand. And so people are passing you by before you even have a chance to see that demand. Make the product available and there's somebody out there who's going to be interested in it. There, there's nobody who is anxiously looking for this because most people don't even know that this is a possibility. It would never occur to them. Okay, fair enough. All right, guys, I think this is probably a good place to wrap it up. Uh, give you each a couple of seconds here to um, 
tell us about your your websites where people can go to find your stuff that kind of stuff why don't you uh kick that off alexis sure um you can find me posting almost daily on tauofdnd.com. If you just look it up on those as those words, you shouldn't have any problem finding me. There are links to my wiki on the site. Uh, I have run online campaigns through a blog, so there are links to the kind of campaigns that I run. If you want to read through the the text on the the those blogs, um, then then you can find those links through my through my uh, through my my blog. Uh, you can find how to run an advanced guide to managing role-playing games and the Dungeon's Front Door and other essays on Amazon, iBooks, and on Lulu. Uh, you can also find another book that I, or two other books that I've written, Pete's Garage, which is a fictional novel, and uh, you can find a copy of uh, How to Play a Character and other essays that's also available on the internet. You shouldn't have any trouble finding that either. Uh, these have all been sold um, right across the country, and I sell them regularly to people around the world. So um, I get very positive reviews from people, and I think that you'll, if you're looking for something new in role-playing perspective, those books will serve you very well. All right, Carl? Well, so I only maintain the one blog. Uh, it is crossingtheverse at wordpress.wordpress.com. That's crossingtheverse, as in universe. Um, when you just type in crossing the verse into a Google search, it'll pretty much pop up on one of your first hits. Um, it's a small time thing. I intend to keep it that way for the time being because I've only got so much time between work and family and all that. Um, I keep a posting schedule of about once a week. Um, sometimes less, sometimes more. I'll go for a spurt for several days. The content is basically geared toward trying to help change perspectives on how to run the game and how to view the game. I try to take a lot of, uh, as I said earlier, where I talk about um, bringing in a logical process-driven work into the game, I try to talk about that, but I also try to bring rational, logical thought to analyzing and criticizing uh, previous incarnations of the game with an, with an eye towards making it better. All right, awesome. And uh, just to uh, to wrap up here, if uh, people want to let us know what they think of our episode, this episode, or any other of our, the other episodes that we've done for Want to Hear Something Interesting, you can send us an email at wanttohearsomethinginteresting at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Facebook at POI Network or at Want to Hear Something Interesting. And with that, I want to say thank you, gentlemen, for coming tonight. It was a great talk. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you Thank very you. much. Absolutely a pleasure. And for all of our listeners out there, we'll talk to you next month. Hasta. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.